Uh, turn with me to Matthew 13. We're looking at uh, verses 44 to 46. Uh, and there's a third couplet of parables. Jesus is teaching about how to appropriate the kingdom of heaven, how to become a citizen of God's kingdom. So let's uh, let me review going back through because we covered a lot of turf, and but we're not done with this section. Uh, but the parable of the hidden treasure in verse 44: Kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. As we saw in those days, they had no banks. And so it was very common to hide your wealth by burying it at someplace out in the fields where it would be highly unlikely that someone else would come along and find it. Uh, and that was particularly the case in Israel because it was a place of war. And inevitably, these invading armies and conquerors would come in, steal, loot, and plunder. So very often, when a battle is on the horizon, people would take the valuable things out of their house and go out in the field and bury them in a place they knew about and from which they could recover it again. And so the ground became the secure storage location for their valuables. So here's a man who's in a field. We don't know if he's simply working in the field as a laborer, if he's rented the use of that field from somewhere else, someone else, but... For whatever reason, he's working in that field, which belonged to another man. And as he's working, maybe he's plowing uh, or he's hoeing the crop or something. He comes across a treasure buried in the ground. And when he finds it, he obviously recognizes that the treasure is of great worth. So he puts it back where he found it, goes and sells every single thing he owns. And he liquidates all that he possesses and buys that field in order that he may gain the treasure. Uh, what the man did here was not wrong under Jewish law. A Jewish rabbinic law says if a man finds scattered fruit or money, it belongs to the finder. The old finders, keepers, losers, weepers principle. And second, we keep in mind the treasure that was hidden didn't belong to the man who owned the field. If it was his, he wouldn't be selling the field without digging it up. Uh, he didn't know it was there. So obviously it belonged to a previous owner uh, of that field who buried it and then perhaps died in battle or by accident or some unexpected you know, heart attack or whatever. And so the current property owner had no prior right to it. Uh, but the man who had uncovered it did have by Jewish law. And we also see that this man was very fair and equitable. If he wasn't an honest man, when he found the treasure, he could have just taken it and left. Uh, but he didn't do that. He put it there. He went and he liquidated his assets and he bought the field from the man. He treated the owner of that land correctly. No one was defrauded. The second parable we looked at, the parable of the pearl of great value, verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. And we pointed out that the word translated merchant here refers to a wholesale dealer uh, whose business it was to buy and resale merchandise to a retailer. So this man is in the pearl wholesaling business. And he would make a diligent search to gain the pearls he hoped to sell to the retailers who sold them to the public. Uh, a high-quality pearl with excellent shape and color would be worth an untold amount of money. They were incredibly valuable. They were considered so valuable that the Talmud spoke of pearls that were beyond price. Uh, the wealthiest women would flaunt their wealth by adorning themselves, putting hair in combs, golden combs in their hair that were studded with pearls. 
so uh, pearls were extremely valuable. Uh, and, and we talked about what Jesus said in Matthew 7.6, do not throw your pearls before swine. Uh, why did he say that? Because he's trying to compare the worst with the most priceless. You don't give your most valuable thing to a pig. Uh, that's foolish. And so pearls were perceived like we perceive high-quality diamonds today as very, very valuable. So in this, this uh, little parable, Jesus tells us that uh, a wholesale merchant went looking, seeking for fine pearls. And, uh, you know, a wise man diversifies his investments. Uh, the one thing you don't do if you're a smart investor is put everything into one investment. But in both parables, that's exactly what these people did. The first man sold everything he owned to buy the one field, and the second man sold everything and bought the one pearl. They both considered the value of the treasure in the field and the value of the pearl to far exceed the value of everything else in their lives. Now, what are the principles we learn from these two parables? Well, we saw, number one, the kingdom is priceless in value. Uh, both parables are designed to teach us the incomparable value of the kingdom of the Lord. Uh, the kingdom is so valuable that it is the most valuable commodity, commodity that can ever be found. And only a fool is not willing to sell everything he has to gain it. Nothing else even comes close. Uh, in Christ's kingdom, there is a treasure. There's a treasure that's rich beyond comparison or conception. There's a treasure which, according to 1 Peter 1.4, is an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. Uh, the blessings of being a child of God through faith in Christ is utterly priceless. It's more valuable than all the possessions the richest man can acquire. There's absolutely nothing to compare it to in its worth and beauty. Uh, it far exceeds that of all earthly riches and advantages put together. Yet God offers his priceless kingdom to any person, no matter how poor or insignificant, no matter how sinful, if they will but trust Jesus Christ. Uh, price is the same for everyone, though. It's everything they have. That's the price. There's a second principle we learn from these parables. It's that the kingdom is not superficially visible. It was The treasure was hidden, right? The pearl had to be sought out. Neither one of them was just lying around on the surface. Uh, the treasure's not obvious to men. The, the value and preciousness of the kingdom of heaven and the value and preciousness of salvation is not seen by men, although it stands there and looks them in the eye world looks at us, and they don't understand why we're consumed with the business of worshiping God. They don't understand why we want to give our lives to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.14 explains it. It says, A natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually examined. 2 Corinthians 4.4, The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So it isn't that apparent. Even though the message is here and the word is here, they don't see it. They're blind. It's not superficially valuable. And there have been many times that you and I or others have described the treasure of the gospel, the beauty of this gospel pearl to people who just turn their backs and walk away. And they don't care. They don't want it. They, they don't understand it's an inestimable, inestimable value. I can't say that word right. Uh, why? Because it's not superficially perceived. It requires the work of God in the heart to cause someone 
to seek the treasure and to see its worth. Many people have a that we encounter have a passing admiration for Jesus, don't they? They, they're but they're totally unaware of the supreme, priceless gift that could be theirs in belonging to the Him. They see the pearl in plain view, but to their worldly eyes, it has little value. The third principle we looked at is that the kingdom is personally appropriated. The kingdom is personally appropriated. This is the crux of the parable. The kingdom is personally appropriated. You have a man in verse 44 and another man in verse 45. We're talking about individuals. And each of them finds something specifically for himself and appropriates it to himself. That's very important. That shows us that you can sort of be in the kingdom. Uh, under the dominion of God and not be a member of the kingdom. Uh, if you're alive on earth, if you live in the universe, you're under God's rule. He is the sovereign of the universe. And so in that sense, you are in the kingdom over which he is the ruler. But you're not a subject of the king. You're not a personal member of the kingdom. There, there's just like a lot of people in the church who aren't Christians. Uh, the world is under the rule and authority of Jesus Christ but is not a part of his true kingdom. There are people on the earth who are under God's reign uh, who have never appropriated the kingdom. Some people think that because they grew up in a Christian home, that makes them a Christian. Uh, others think their regular attendance at some kind of church makes them a Christian. Uh, still others think because they got baptized as an infant, that automatically made them a Christian. It's not the case. Appropriation of the treasure is an individual matter, and so it is to the point of pers that personal appropriation that we come in these two parables. The, the two men in the parables, having recognized the value of what they found, sold everything else in order to have it. speaks of individual appropriation. It tells us that salvation does not consist in merely seeing the value of Christ's work and wanting it for oneself. Christ must actually become ours by faith which means is the means of appropriation. Salvation is a personal matter. As I said last week, people are not saved in mass. Uh, they're saved one at a time, uh, one by one. Man in the field didn't allow someone else to, to buy the treasure hoping he could share in it. Uh, he didn't, uh, the merchant didn't form a co-op of several merchants to chip in some money in order to buy that pearl of great price. Each one made the purchase for himself. Well, there's a fourth principle, and this is where we stopped last time, and it is this. The kingdom is the source of true joy. The kingdom is the source of true joy. What does it say there in verse 44? It tells us, from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now, that's a very insightful notation in this principle, in this parable. Uh, Jesus didn't have to say that, but he did. It's very important because he's acknowledging something that all of us recognize to be true. Uh, that is that the basic desire of all human beings on the face of the earth is to be happy. Uh, the desire to be happy is the desire that all other desires either directly or indirectly serve. We like to eat because food brings joy and satisfaction to our taste buds and a good feeling and hopefully health to our bodies. Uh, the desire for money is primarily based on the joy we hope to find in the things money can buy. Uh, fame, power, knowledge, all the other things we long for are desired 
for the joy it's hoped that they will bring. Even the miserly individual who hoards all of his money hoards it for the joy that it brings to him. Um, you say, well, Bruce, I know some people who just seem to love misery. Uh, can, how can you say that they love happiness? Well, yes, they're happy being miserable. Uh, but it, it's, it's the joy of feeling sorry for themselves. Uh, I, I don't understand that approach. But uh, I've met some people like that during my life. And if misery makes them happy, it still proves the point. Um, the world is seeking for joy and happiness. People want to feel good. And yet all of those joys are temporary and disappointing. Uh, the only true eternal joy is the joy found in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Because man was made by God for himself. Human satisfaction can be found only in God's divine provision. Uh, in John 15:11, Jesus summed up the, the best of what he had to offer with these words to his disciples. He says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Um, and in 1 John 4, 1, 4, John says, These things we are writing so that our joy may be made complete. Uh, John 16, 24, Jesus says, Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made complete. Uh, Romans 14, 17 says, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13, Paul writes, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. People want to be joyful. People want to be happy. And here it is. It's all bound up in the treasure. True joy comes only in the discovery and appropriation of Christ and his kingdom through trust in him. There's a fifth principle, and this is very helpful one. It is that the kingdom may be entered from different circumstances. The kingdom may be entered from different circumstances. There's no precondition for turning from sin and turning to Christ in faith. A person does not have to become anything else before he becomes a Christian. And he can come from wherever he may be. Now there are some similarities in these parables. In both cases, you have a man who finds something of great value. In both cases, they understand its value. In both cases, they're willing to pay any price for it. So they're very similar in those ways. But there's a noticeable difference. The man who found the treasure hidden in the field was apparently not looking for it. Uh, his discovery was what we would call an accident. Uh, whereas in the case of the merchant, he knew exactly what he was looking for. And so finding the pearl was the result of a long and faithful quest. Now, what does this tell us? Well, the man in the field most likely was not looking for treasure. He's going through whatever routine he went through, plowing a field or building something or preparing some of the soil for some other purpose. He's in the field doing his work in order to obtain sustenance for his life, carrying out his usual normal activities, and he stumbles across a fortune. Now, are there people who enter the kingdom like that? Sure there are. Uh, the Apostle Paul, 
Was he seeking to enter the kingdom? <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, he thought he was in it already. He was on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. Next thing he knows, God knocks him off a horse. He lands in the dirt. He looks up, saw the risen, glorified Christ, and he was redeemed. Uh, he's just doing his own thing. He was just plowing his field, and he stumbled on a fortune. What about the Samaritan woman? She was thirsty. She went down to the well to get a drink of water and ended up going home redeemed. Uh, and then there was the man born blind. All he wanted out of life was to be able to see, and he went away redeemed also. And I've heard stories of people who were grudgingly dragged to church by a family member, only uh, doing it only to please that family member. And yet while there, they heard the gospel and were saved. So there are people who aren't particularly seeking the treasure, but they stumble onto it. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when he was young, sort of resolutely attended church because it was thing to do in the British culture of his time. Uh, but he didn't know Christ. He wasn't seeking Christ. He was content with his religiosity. Uh, in his wonderful biography of Spurgeon's life, Ian Murray recounts the story of Spurgeon's conversion by quoting Spurgeon's own account. Here it is. It's lengthy, but I think you'd enjoy hearing Spurgeon's testimony. He says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodist, how they sang so loudly they made people's heads ache, but that did not matter to me. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He said it. I didn't say that. He, said he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45:22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. The preacher began thus, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it is just look. Well, a man didn't need to go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you, ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some, on ye, some of ye say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. It says, then the good man followed up his text with this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. When he had managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery 
and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. <laughs> However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I knew not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith that looks alone to him. My spirit saw its chains broken to pieces. I felt that I was an emancipated soul, an heir of heaven, a forgiven one, accepted in Jesus Christ, plucked out of the miry clay and out of the horrible pit with my feet set upon a rock and my goings established. The end. So. How old was he for his He was in his, 15, yeah, somewhere in his teens. Yeah. Spurgeon wasn't searching for anything, but it got him anyway. <laughs> Uh, he stumbled into a fortune. Few people have ever, who have ever lived have affected so many souls as Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, I don't know who that stupid guy was that just kept repeating the text, but it was of God. Uh, and then there's the other man, the man who was looking for pearls. He knew what he was looking for. He wasn't just strolling along or working in the field like the other guy was. He was... He wasn't the guy who was content with the secular and the mildly religious. This guy was looking for something of genuine value. Uh, this is the true seeker. This is the Ethiopian eunuch of Acts 8. This is Cornelius of Acts 10. This is the Lydia of Acts 16, the Philippian jailer of Acts 16, the Berean of Acts 17. This is the one who is seeking God and seeking virtue and seeking that which is of true value. But what he doesn't understand in his seeking is that his seeking is entirely the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart, drawing him irresistibly to the pearl of gospel truth. And so there are people who come into the kingdom because the Holy Spirit has been slowly, almost imperceptibly drawing them to find that great pearl. So that's that principle. We come to the last principle. It's also very important. It's this. The kingdom is made personal by a transaction. The kingdom is made personal by a transaction. Notice that in both parables, the priceless object was bought at the expense of every possession the finder owned. That causes a lot of Christians to get really nervous about these parables because they think that Jesus was saying that salvation can be bought. So listen carefully, I'll try to clear this out. The Bible makes it abundantly clear salvation is totally the free gift of God. You can't buy your salvation with money. 
A rich man can no more buy his way into the kingdom than you can shove a camel through the eye of a needle. That isn't the point. But nonetheless, there is a sense. There's a sense in which salvation is purchased. There's a great Old Testament passage that people always relate to salvation by grace, and it's in Isaiah 55.1. It says this, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And everybody says, ah, yes, without money and without cost. You don't need any money. But they forget that it says, come buy. Come buy it. You buy it. You don't just buy it with money. There is a purchase made, a transaction in salvation. You say, well, what is it? Well, it isn't money and it isn't human works. So what is it then? Here it is. You give up all that you have for all that he has. That's the essence of the transaction of salvation. I give up all I have and God gives me all he has. Now listen very carefully. I don't want to be misunderstood at this point and you need to understand it very clearly in your mind. In Luke 9, 57 and 58, it says that as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There's the price, your comfort. Your comfort. Jesus says, you give me your comfort, I'll give you my kingdom. This, the guy wouldn't make that transi- transaction. In verses 59 and 60, we're told that Jesus said to another, follow me. And he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. And he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Again, no deal. The guy wouldn't give up his inheritance. And then verses 61 and 62, and others also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, you can't plow a straight furrow looking in the opposite direction. And that, again, that was another no deal. The guy was unwilling to give up his family. Now, you don't get saved by money and you don't get saved by giving up uh, all of those other, by, you don't get saved by all of those other elements there. That isn't the salvation factor, but it's indicative of whether you're willing to make the transaction of salvation, which says that nothing stands between your willingness to give up yourself to receive Christ. That's the issue. In Matthew 10:37, Jesus said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, if you're not willing to give up everything, including your family, if need be, then you're not going to enter the kingdom. Verse 38, and he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. There's the transaction. You give up all that you are, and you receive all that he is. That's salvation. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Salvation is an act whereby I exchange me as the ruler of my life 
for him as the ruler of my life. That's the basic principle. Remember the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus, Matthew 19. He says, what do I have to do to get into your kingdom? What do I have to do to have eternal life? Here's what Jesus said. If you want to be in my kingdom, then go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. In other words, if you want my treasure, then give away all of yours. Now, do you get saved by giving away your money to the poor? No. You come to Christ and you're saved when you're willing to abandon everything to affirm that he is Lord of your life. That's the transaction. We exchange ourselves, our sin, our will, our control of our lives for Christ's leadership. Now, I don't think that at the moment people get saved, they necessarily understand all of the ramifications of that. I don't think they understand all of the elements of that. But I believe true salvation is marked by a willingness to do that as their understanding unfolds. It's not saying, well, you can get saved when you stop your sinning and cursing and drinking and stop beating your wife and stop your sexual lusting. Then you can come to me. No, no, no. It is saying, Lord, I can't get rid of these things. I exchange my own will and my own strength and my own resources and I strip myself bare and in turn I receive your strength and your power. That's the transaction. The willingness to abandon everything under Christ's lordship. Paul illustrates this for us in Philippians 3. Listen to what he says. Philippians 3 verses 4 to 6. He says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. That was the list of all his earthly self-righteousness. That was all that he had that any Jew would think would, made, would have made him right with God. In other words, the stuff that was on his account was his Jewishness, his belonging to the tribe of Benjamin. That was important because Benjamin was one of the good tribes. Uh, and then, so he was identified as a true Jew, as a Pharisee. He had zeal. He was righteous according to the law. And he was blameless. He says, boy, my Judaism, my self-righteousness, my holiness, and all of those things, that's my stock in trade. That was my reservoir. And when confronted with Christ, what happened? Verses 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. There's a man buying the treasure, right? There's a man buying the pearl. He will liquidate everything. All of his self-righteousness, all of his own resources, all of his own self-will is abandoned to the affirmation of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't understand all that that implies. He doesn't understand all that that means, but the willingness is there. 
Any price is worth it if I can be found in him, if I can know him, if I can attain the resurrection of the dead. Any price. One final point. I don't think we emphasize the cost factor enough when we present the gospel. We don't emphasize it nearly as much as we should. I think we need to stress the fact that it will cost the one coming to Christ everything. We are to call for a transaction. Now, I think that if we do that, we're going to see far fewer converts because they will recognize what we're asking them to do. In Luke 14, Jesus was speaking about coming to him for salvation. Here's what he said, beginning in verse 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not sit first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Lest when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what man, when, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you, Listen to this. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Don't present the gospel so that it sounds like it doesn't cost anything. Make sure those you're talking to understand the cost. But also, make sure they understand that it's worth the cost. The pearl is so valuable, the treasure is so valuable, it's worth any cost. The kingdom is priceless in value. The kingdom is not superficially visible. The kingdom is personally appropriated. The kingdom is a source of true joy. The kingdom is entered through different circumstances, but always by a transaction in which you abandon yourself to receive the supreme sovereignty of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the end of these parables. Yes. That is Luke 14, verses 28 to 33. Any questions or comments before we move on? Yes. When someone was sharing the gospel with me the first time that I understood it, I was in, I was in a, a dance, uh, a, an apprentice in a dance theater. Mm-hmm. And um, was dancing like 25 hours a week, and I sh- that my heart was really. When I heard the gospel, I I asked the person, "Well, I have to give up dancing to become a Christian," and he said, "You won't you won't have to give it up. The Lord will take your desire away from you." Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, and I because I was just so drawn, and the Lord did, and I just was like, I was willing to just put that aside and just, and you know, and just really come to faith in Christ. But later on, I thought, you know, I was thinking that was I putting something before the Lord to say, Lord, if you know, if you're asking me to do this, I mean, I don't think that I was saying if you want me to do this, I can't. Come to you, but 
But he did. He, he just he took the desire away. So you're saying that all of us missed out on the opportunity to see the great ballerina, Janetta Amy? <laughs> so, yeah. <Yes. laughs> it wouldn't have been great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we come to the last two parables given by Jesus in this 13th chapter of Matthew from verses 47 to 52. These, these final two illustrate the separation and judgment of unbelievers and the preaching and teaching of God's ministers. The first gives a warning, and the second gives a call to proclaim that warning to a condemned world. So let's begin with the parable of the dragnet, verses 47 to 50. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As I said, this particular parable is about hell and judgment. And the capstone of the parable is found in verse 50, where he discusses the fiery furnace where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus spoke very much and very often about hell. Uh, he said many things about the abode of the damned, that is, the wicked Christ rejectors. But of all the startling, terrifying things Jesus ever said, said perhaps the most startling was when he said to the Jewish Leaders, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? It seems strange to hear words like that coming from the mouth of Jesus. Uh, but everyone, because everyone always associates Jesus with love and mercy, they don't associate him with hell and damnation. Uh, but he said more about hell than he did about love. Uh, he said more about hell than all the other biblical preachers combined. Uh, and so if we're to model our preaching after his, then warning people about hell will be a major theme of ours. Uh, hell is not one big party of all the sinners going through all of eternity. You know, it's a bit uncomfortable after all it is in heaven, but it's still a place where all the rowdy, rebellious, hard-living folks in life can get together in the next and continue their partying. What deception. Uh, hell is not fun. One Anonymous writer had this to say about hell. Quote, There is no way to describe hell. Nothing on earth can compare with it. No living person has any real idea of it. No madman in wildest flights of insanity ever beheld its horror. No man in delirium ever pictured a place so utterly terrible as this. No nightmare racing across a fevered mind ever produced a terror to match the mildest hell. No murder scene with splashed blood and oozing wound ever suggested a revulsion that could touch the borderlands of hell. Let the most gifted writer exhaust his skill in describing this roaring cavern of unending flame, and he would not even brush in fancy the nearest edge of hell. End quote. Uh, this is a parable in which our Lord warns us about hell. Uh, now remember in these parables, the Lord is telling us what it will be like in this period of the world history, this form of his rule. He is, he's the king and he rules the world and he's allowing in this period of time good and evil to grow together, as we saw in the parable of the wheat and the tares. He's tolerant in this of the evil through this period. But in the end will come judgment, and that's why he warns about that in this parable. 
Now we have swept through the parables that describe the nature of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom, the personal appropriation of the kingdom, and now we come to the climax of the kingdom, and it's there's judgment, and it's a fearful warning that in the end there will be eternal separation of the damned from the redeemed, and the world is moving towards this. Every day human life is moving towards that inevitable hour. Today, at least 5,282 people in the United States of America alone, just our nation, will die in inner eternity. Uh, most of them will go to hell. Uh, and this final parable brings us a sense of severe warning. Lord gives us a picture of judgment, principle of judgment, the peril of judgment. Let's begin with the picture of judgment. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up to the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. Fishing, as you know, in our Lord's time was a common enterprise and a way of life for many people. It was the commercial occupation of several of the disciples. Uh, so they understood very clearly what he was talking about. Basically, there were three ways that fishing was done on the Sea of Galilee, and those three ways are still being used there. Uh, the first way was a line and hook, uh, which was used to catch uh, one fish at a time. That's the kind of fishing that Jesus instructed Peter to use in Matthew 17:27, when they needed to pay the two drachma tax. Uh, he says, go to the sea, throw in a hook, take out the first fish that comes up, and when you open his mouth, you'll find a stator. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Each person had to pay a tax of two drachmas, and a stator was worth four drachmas. So Jesus was providing the tax payment for both him and Peter. Uh, and he did it by having Peter catch a fish using a hook and line. The second type of fishing was done with a cast net. I don't know if any of you other than Barry has uh, ever fished with a cast net, but I have. Um, I wasn't all that skilled with a net. Uh, I think the most I ever caught with one cast was about a half a dozen mullet. Uh, my son once caught 20 mullet with one cast. Um, there's a limit of 50 mullet per day in Florida, and I've known people who were skilled with a cast net to catch that many in an hour. Um, the cast net hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. Uh, yes, today the net can be made of nylon or monofilament line that they don't didn't have in biblical times, but the principle of how it works is still the same. Uh, it's a large round net, usually six to eight feet long, which means that when it's spread out, it's 12 to 16 feet in diameter. And all the outer perimeter of the net, there are these lead weights. And uh, uh, there's a long cord in the center of the net that attaches to the fisherman's wrist and causes the net to close when it's pulled. Uh, so the cast net is thrown out over a school of fish. So it opens up and sinks down over them, trapping the fish, and then the Fisherman pulls the center cord. It pulls the sides of the net together into a ball that closes around the fish. He pulls it up on the, out of the water with the fish inside. Uh, that's the kind of net that Peter and Andrew were using in Matthew 4, 18 and 19, uh, when Jesus told them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Uh, in other words, follow me and I'll teach you how to cast the gospel net that catches men for Christ. Uh, throwing a cast net can be tricky, but it's a lot of fun. Um, it took me a while to learn. It's been so long since I used one, I'd have to have Barry refresh me on how to do it. Uh, but a skilled cast netter can throw that thing so it opens up fully into a big circle and closes over a lot of fish. 
But you have to be careful about throwing it over rocks and other things hidden in the water because that can rip your net badly. Uh, and that's why you read passages like Matthew 4.21, uh, where it tells us that when Jesus called James and John to be his disciples, they were sitting in their boat mending their nets. Uh, whether it was a cast net or a drag net, we aren't told. Uh, both kinds of nets are susceptible to rips and tears due to being caught on rocks. Or, uh, but cast nets are more typically snagged and ripped because they typically are used in shallower water than a drag net is used. Uh, however, in biblical times, the nets were not made of the strong, sturdy line that we have today. So a large school of fish in a net could break the net. And that's why we read in Luke 5, 6, where Jesus performed the miracle of helping the disciples catch so many fish that their nets began to break. The third type of fishing and the second type of net that was used on the Sea of Galilee uh, was a large drag net. Uh, today we typically refer to this type of net as a seine net or a gill net. Uh, that is the type of net that Jesus is talking about here. The, and when I say large, I mean very large. Some of them could encircle half of a square mile. Uh, they were not something that one man could operate. It took the effort of several men. When I was a teenager growing up in Oldsmar, I had a good friend, Mike, uh, whose family owned a fish market and bait shop at the upper end of Tampa Bay there in town. In fact, he and his mother were believers who went to the same church that my family attended. And I had the opportunity to go out with Mike a few times on the bay to help him run their crab traps and to work the gill net that they used to catch fish for the fish market. Now let me mention that fishing with a seine or a gill net is now prohibited in Florida, but it was not 50, 55 years ago. Uh, they're so effective in catching uh, fish that large commercial fishing companies who were using massively large nets uh, were wiping out the population of various types of fish, so they are now prohibited. Uh, you can still cast net, but no more seines or gill nets. Uh, but the drag net or gill net that we used was much like those that were used on the Sea of Galilee in biblical times. It's about six or eight feet wide. Uh, along the top edge, there were floats tied every five or six feet. And along the bottom edge, there were lead weights tied to it every few inches that held down in the water like a vertical wall. And uh, the one that Mike had was only about 100 yards long, so we weren't encompassing a uh, half square mile of upper Tampa Bay. But the one end of the net was tied to the boat, and then we would start feeding the net over the back end of the boat into the water uh, as we slowly drove around until we emptied out all the net. And then we would begin to turn the boat and eventually make a complete circle, capturing all the fish that weren't smart enough to swim under the net, uh, which was very few because fish aren't all that smart. Uh, and the fish that were inside the circle of the net would try to escape and they would run into the net and their gills and fins would be caught in the net and they would be captured. And then as we pull the net back into the boat, uh, we would sort through the fish that were caught in the net. We would pull out the mullet that we wanted and throw the other types of fish that were not edible fish for market or that were too small or that fishing regulations prohibited from being caught by net. We'd throw them back in the water. Now in the Sea of Galilee, they would also use a technique in which they attach one end of the net to the shore and the rest of the net would be in the boat and then the boat would go out uh, from the shore stretching the net out into the lake and then the boat would move back in a circle and eventually return to the spot on the shore where the net was attached and as it did it moved through the sea like this vertical wall capturing everything that was in front of the net and because the net permitted nothing to escape all sorts of things besides the desirable fish were caught. It swept everything in its path. 
uh, weeds, grasses, objects dropped overboard in boats, and fish of every kind. And when the net was filled, it would take several men, several hours, just to drag it up on the beach because they had to be careful not to rip the net because of the great haul of fish that, was, uh, that they had caught. And then Jesus says, they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. Uh, the fish for distant markets was put into containers with water to keep the fresh fish, and those that were to be sold in local markets would be in dry containers, usually baskets. So that's the picture that Jesus gives. And now he's going to interpret what the picture means, but you're going to have to wait until January to hear the interpretation of that principle. But you do go away from here knowing about cast netting and gill netting. And, okay. And if you want to know more about it, come see Barry. He's, he's my local expert. Any uh, other comments or questions before we go? Remember? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Hell is a place of outer darkness where uh, there is never light. So, you know, if there was ever, if you thought there was going to be light in 10,000 years, there's hope. There's no hope of ever seeing light. It's absolutely dark. It's absolutely agonizing pain. It never, ever ends. It's a horrible thing. And they still keep hating God. And they still keep hating God. All right. Yes? Regarding people who are happy to be visible, we have a lot of people who are seeking out how they can become victims. Yes, yes. And that's what makes them happy. That makes them happy. That's nuts. Yeah. Well, don't forget now, no Sunday school the next two Sunday mornings. Only the main worship service at 1040. No evening service, nothing. Okay? So don't show up here. I won't be here. Marcia won't be here. You'll be standing here by yourself. So. Somebody should provide donuts for those people who do show up. Since you brought that up, Richard, I'll entrust that responsibility to you. 